Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air, as always. I'm sure some of you were wondering after about three days, where was I? Well, I was um, here where I live, but I believe it's good to give you all, my listeners, time to get caught up on uh, podcasts that I have done recently, whether it's this current series we're doing on Paul Revere's Ride or from past podcasts. I will admit, yes, uh, at one time, podcasts of mine were coming left and right at all of, at, at each angle, but there was a reason for it. If you are really committed to something like podcasting, you want to do whatever it takes to keep getting the word out and also um, get people interested in historical topics, or I should say subjects, that they you all, like you all, uh, knew information about but maybe didn't know as much as you thought you had. See, that's where the beauty of history comes in. Just when we think we've learned everything there is to know about something, we are constantly learning new things that uh, remind us that, hey, the stories we got told before, while some of those stories could have some truth, they're not as 100% accurate as we were led to believe all along. Perhaps that's the message that most of us, or hopefully all of us who have been listening to, to Paul Revere's ride, are coming to the realization that, hey, this was not a one-man show. One man by himself could not have gone around from town to town saying the British were coming. And I believe the last time I was on the air with you guys, we were able to debunk that myth that uh, Paul Revere didn't say the British were coming. If he said anything, which he did, he and the other uh, dispatch riders would have said that the regulars are coming, the redcoats. Something that perhaps is a little bit more um, accurate. In other words, when I think of you know, the British coming, I think of the redcoats. I don't think of just ordinary uh, loyalists, but people who are serving in the king's army. So... What are we going to be discussing now in Paul Revere's ride that we have not um, touched on yet? Well, we're going to, it'll be a, a two-prong approach. And what I mean by two-prong is that we will be discovering, discovering and discussing two um, arenas. One is going to be the capture. Now, I know that ought to be um, alarming because when one is captured, we sometimes think that that's the end of their uh, journey, but we could we could be in for a surprise that uh, this capture might have been a temporary one. So yes, we will be discussing the capture along with the other riders. Ah, there we have it, folks. Okay, if there are other riders who are involved in this um, effort in this collective effort, like we discussed from the previous night, then we should know that the story itself cannot revolve around just one man himself. How about a greater community effort as a whole to make not only Paul Revere's ride more relevant, but the greater network that went along in supporting what Paul Revere and the dispatch, other dispatch riders, uh, went about performing. So, our first leadoff question, which pertains to the capture, 
is the following. As Paul Revere and William Dawes left Lexington late evening on April 18, 1775, and when I say late, e late evening, I'm talking about uh, 10 o'clock or past 10 going on, say, close to midnight. Whom did they come across for the first time? Okay. You know, late at night, you know, most people, not would say most, the majority of everyday people are in bed. They're usually in bed by 7 o'clock. After all, people are working from um, sunrise to sunset. They are pretty much working up until there's no, um, no longer sunlight uh, visible. But whom would Paul Revere and William Dawes come across late evening, April 18, 1775? I can tell you, for one, that it is an ardent patriot. But his name is uh, Dr. Samuel Prescott, who is a physician from Concord. And so uh, after they uh, meet with uh, Dr. Prescott, they um, ask if he would be a part of the journey. And Prescott, like, Revere's and, like Revere and Dawes, is an ardent patriot. And why not, um, why not have a stake in this mission? After all, there's so much at stake that, um, that the more people there are, not just riding along with Revere and Dawes, but who are going to participate in these rides, it's not just the people who are riding out there who are making history. Let's keep in mind that whomever gets advised about the warnings before them, they too are going to be making history. They may not have Paul Revere status, but remember, they do have a stake. A stake that is um, relevant, a stake that, um, that will have um, meaningful impact a stake where all intelligence from bottom to top is rewarded. Remember, folks, the British system, the intelligence came from top to bottom. I think it's fair to say here that the intelligence uh, system on the American side going from bottom to top is far more beneficial because when you do top to bottom, who's going to get more favoritism or, say, preferential treatment? People from the top. Whereas from the bottom to the top, we know that it's a collective effort where there is no favoritism, but everyone's um, voice is valued and everyone's um, input has meaningful significance to where the objectives will be achieved without any kind of politics getting in the way. So uh, Paul Revere and uh, William Dawes, obviously shared their mission or their game plan strategy with uh, Dr. Prescott, whom offered to help warn the countryside, or I should say the outlying towns of Boston. Now, did Paul Revere propose a plan which involved preparing for the worst-case scenario? Yes, he did. And that's smart. As much as we would like to believe that our, um, that our hero who was so famous for going on his uh, midnight ride by warning everyone that the British were coming, we'd like to believe that he was never in any harm's way, but we must keep in mind that even our uh, most prominent of leaders, yes, they were sacrificing a great deal of their uh, life, but they also knew that what they were sacrificing for also could have meant being captured. But, by being, but if they were captured, they would hope that the uh, flame... For, um, for freedom, the flame for keeping independence alive would not go extinguished as well. So in other words, 
If one leader gets caught, you've got to hope that five or ten other people can take his place. Because if you don't, then how can any mission onto itself be fulfilled? It's just not possible. After all, Thomas Gage, General Thomas Gage for that matter, he knew that even if Paul Revere were captured or Samuel Adams, John Hancock, he knows that, okay, even if I've captured one or two men who could be of prized possession, there still will be ten to ten other men at best who will who will uh, take their place and carry out their um, fulfilled mission, and that is to to uh, be separate or to declare separation from England. So, as for Paul Revere, he advised the other two men about the ever-growing presence of British patrol units through the countryside. But as for his plan, it, it would require all three men to work together in alarming every house from one farmstead after the other, most notably from the western end of Lexington and onward. Okay, so, would it be fair to say that it might be best that all three men, yes, they could stick together, but maybe they need to travel in different directions, because if one gets caught, the other two going in opposite directions would still be able to get the word out. Now, what kind of road conditions or roads in general do you think that uh, these three men would have been traveling along? I don't believe they were the top-of-the-line roads for their day, but whatever roads they had to travel by, it must have um, it must have suited them well enough to where they were still able to get to where they needed uh, from point A to point B in a reasonable time frame. But all three men rode along the Great Road, which was in between Lexington and Concord. This road comprised of open fields, pastures, including patches of swamp and woodland. Of course, when I think of swamp, I often think of like the Great Dismal Swamp down in uh, Suffolk, um, Virginia, uh, a couple of hours east of uh, where I live. And I, when I also think of swamps, I also think of like the, the low country in uh, South Carolina or as far south as Georgia. But we do forget that there's even, you know, patches of swamp up north in uh, Massachusetts, for example. So sometimes it's best to be reminded that um, just because when we think of uh, one term, we can't always confine it to just one region alone. Um, believe it or not, there are swamps that uh, do exist up north. They just may have a different layout compared to uh, southern states. Now, would the three horsemen encounter more than one unit of British regulars? Okay, so this is where we need to really listen carefully, folks. The answer is yes. After having warned a family by the name of uh, Nelson about the presence of, um, not just so much the presence, but that the British advance was inevitable and at some point the, uh, that British troops would be coming in their territory, British officers were eventually caught up with these three horsemen, Revere, Prescott, and Dawes. They didn't identify them right away, but they were suspicious of these three because they were, you know, for one, they didn't um, identify themselves as, as being a part of the king's army. But they saw these three people as everyday ordinary people who were doing their duty and warning the countryside. So the British officers decided upon themselves to, uh, to 
to uh, follow the to follow the three men very close, basically be on their tail. Revere and Prescott knew what lied ahead, and in order to be a step ahead of them, they went into what's called put-on mode. I'm sure most of you are wondering, what is put-on mode? Well, uh, David Hackett Fisher, the author of Paul Revere's Ride, described put-on mode as the following. Basically, where um, Revere and Prescott dug their heels into their horses' sides and galloped for their lives. In other words, they just went all out. They basically just said, look, you know, this is do or die. We have, we've got to hit, we've got to go full speed, full speed in order to avoid and like, you know, being hit for, or being blindsided. Well, this did work only for one of the two, Dr. Uh, Prescott. He, he got by unharmed, but as for Paul Revere, his luck ran out. Wow. Um, who would have thought that um, that Paul Revere would have luck not be on his side? So as for Dr. Prescott and William Dawes, they avoided capture. However, the British turned their hostilities towards the man they got, the man that they wanted all along, being none other than Paul Revere himself. It's probably fair to say by now that maybe Paul Revere is on is listed as the number one um, suspect in the king on the king's army's list. There are some other suspects, obviously, like John Hancock, Samuel Adams, even Dr. Joseph Warren is on this list by now. But I think it's fair to say by now for the British, Paul Revere is number one. Do you believe? Do any of you believe that Paul Revere might have been the only prisoner in British hands at, at the time that he was captured? No, it turns out that other riders had been captured, uh, everyday ordinary people whom we never would have known about, but thanks to David Hackett Fisher, he has mentioned about these men, like Elijah Sanderson to Jonathan Loring, whom had been sent from Lexington. In other words, they were riders um, whom had left Lexington. They were probably somewhere in the nearby vicinity that Paul Revere was on, but they um, met an unfortunate, um, what do you call it, um, an unfortunate mishap by being uh, captured uh, by the British. You know, it's one thing to be um, caught as a prisoner, but now we have to ask ourselves this. If you're Paul Revere, are you scared? Or are you going to remain determined focused because he doesn't know what's going to be asked to him. He doesn't know that he could be confronted by more than one interrogator. You know, usually when, you know, in today's world, when someone's behind bars being interrogated, we usually have, you know, one or two people, but we might be surprised to find out that there's going to be more than two people interrogating Paul Revere and let's keep in mind, too, there, are, there is no such thing as the Miranda um, rule, or I should say Miranda rights, okay? For those of you who aren't familiar with the Miranda rights, they were uh, put into play back in the 1960s here in the United States. It was a United States Supreme Court case that, um, where the high court basically ruled that um, a defendant 
was entitled to have his or her rights be read to them so that they knew what they were before what they were being formally charged with and that if for some reason they did not have access to be able to hire an attorney of their own the court would appoint them one um, free of charge so basically uh, when Paul Revere was captured the British Army didn't um, say to him you have the right to remain silent anything you can anything you say can and would be used against you in a court of law you have the right to an attorney now that that's not uh, happening just yet so um, were all the prisoners, including Revere himself, were all of them interrogated? Yes. What do you? What kind of questions do you think they would have been asked? How about, most notably, uh, John Hancock and Samuel Adams' whereabouts? They were probably asked other questions, but when I think of one in particular, I think of the uh, of John Hancock and Samuel Adams and their whereabouts. Why? Because so many other so many other ordinary everyday people in uh, communities outside of Boston had been asked the same question. After all, you know there were some, um, as we had mentioned from a previous podcast, there were a couple of British soldiers who went undercover into the outskirts of Boston and tried to uh, ask questions about Adams and uh, Hancock, and they didn't get the answers they wanted. But the bottom line is, is that that question doesn't seem to go away. So, what do uh, what do what other things could the British officers have done? Well, they inquired about Paul Revere's status. Okay, by status, what are we talking about? We're not talking about where his status stands in society, but what he, but what he's currently doing. They know that he's a silversmith, but they also know he's more than just a silversmith. How about being an express rider, courier, dispatcher? So they know, they know what he's doing. Okay. Now I'm sure many of you all would be very uh, scared if if this happened to you all as individuals. I might be scared myself too. But this is where Paul Revere's internal instincts are going to come into play, and they have to because if they don't. What do you think the chances are that he might even come out alive? Okay. With all the questions that were hurled at him, he stood firm in his responses, considering there were six pistols pointed at him. So can you imagine being Paul Revere? You're More than likely, he's being told to sit down. He's being interrogated by at least three or more people at best who are demanding answers. And obviously, if Revere doesn't, you know, comply, then yes, he knows that he could be a dead man. But he also knows that if he stands up for himself without fueling the fire, he could come out alive. So given that he's got six pistols pointed at him, Paul Revere goes as far as telling the interrogators, telling the interrogators, pardon me, (laughs) a little tongue twister there, He goes about telling them that he had warned the entire countryside from bottom to top. And by doing this, he's making it clear to the British officers that, hey, look, you can frighten me all you want by having six pistols pointed at me, but 
the the buck doesn't stop with me. In other words, even if you may have, I might be captured right now, but this whole mission itself doesn't revolve around me. There are 20 or more people out there, riders at best, warning towns and their people east to west, north, south. So no matter how far you go with questioning me, there are already people out there. There are already others out there still carrying out the job, carrying out the duties, carrying on the mission so that it doesn't end with one person being captured. The British officers become greatly agitated by his manipulation. In other words, they don't like the fact that Paul Revere somehow is manipulating them to the point where now they don't even have a response to go about um, capturing all these other men whom are out there carrying on the fight. Remember what I said from previous podcasts? Who's the mighty empire in the world? England. She's like an elephant. An elephant can represent dominance over everyone else. Here, here she is, the elephant in, in uh, colonial America. She has a, a vast empire, as we know, but her 13 colonies in colonial America are a huge asset to her. The problem is that she's in enemy's territory, a.k.a. Massachusetts. And in Massachusetts, the towns, you know, Boston's not a city just yet, but it's still considered a town. And the, the countryside, they all represent the mosquitoes. Remember, folks, even the courier riders are like mosquitoes. They're coming in all directions, warning people of, of the British, eventual British advance. And the mosquitoes are the ones that are getting the information out. They are also getting the people to mobilize. So no matter what direction the elephant goes, the mosquito will be on its tail, and it may sting the elephant, but it will also be a way to remind the elephant that, hey, you're not as dominant as you think you are. You can't underestimate the little guys. So the bottom, to sum it up, folks, the British officers, yes, they are agitated, but they are agitated over the fact that Paul Revere knows more about their movements than they previously thought. In other words, the British have really um, underestimated our intelligence. We're not rabble. We're not peasants with pitchforks. We are everyday, ordinary people who do have a lot of brains on everyday uh, news. Well, I don't know if I'd say we'd be getting news every day in the 18th century, but on everyday daily movements from point A to point B in their towns. In other words, people know, who, people know one another. People are looking after one another, and when it comes to something that's suspicious, yeah, everybody's going to get involved and they're going to keep their eyes out. So when Paul Revere got captured, did he have any weapons, like a rifle, musket, or pistol on him? Did he have anything like that? No. It turns out, folks, that it probably was a blessing that Paul Revere did not have any weapons on him. If so, history might have seen a different outcome. Had, he, had, Revere, had, had Revere himself had any weapons on him, I think he, um, he would have been interrogated even more to where... Um, to where he could have met a very uh, tragic fate. So during this whole time that he's interrogated, is it fair to say that Revere remained confident? 
Absolutely. He didn't flinch. He didn't break down. He didn't start crying and saying, oh my gosh, the British have me. I don't know what to do. I, I believe it's fair to say, folks, that Paul Revere is an example of what we often associate, especially when we uh, see commercials on television about the Marines, the few, the proud. Paul Revere um, is a good example of the few, the proud. He's also a good example of what's called survival of the fittest. And it's not just being in good physical shape. How about mental toughness? You think about it. He had six pistols pointed at him. He didn't flinch. He didn't break down. That's what the British wanted him to do. They wanted him to break down. They wanted him to break down so badly that he would spill the, spill the beans about the entire operation. But did he? No, he didn't. He went as far as warning the British officers about the greater troubles if they re remained nearby Lexington Green. So, so basically, the longer the British stay in Lexington Green, the greater the, um, the problems for them in general. Not just uh, with people getting the word out about their presence, but perhaps maybe um, what we might call the militia mustering that is coming together to take a, a stand to say, hey, we're not afraid to go head to toe with the mightiest um, empire in the world. So the British soldiers decide that it's smart to listen very carefully to where they themselves now understand just how important the present situation was. Okay, this guy's not a dummy. We don't have to like what he's saying, but maybe he's telling us something that perhaps we ought to um, think about before fueling the fire any further. So in the aftermath of Revere's interrogation, what happened afterwards? Okay. Well, it turns out that the British take Paul Revere and three other prisoners, uh, most notably even uh, two of those three prisoners uh, being um, uh, Loring and um, Jonathan Loring and Elijah Sanderson. The three prisoners, including Paul Revere, so there were four total, the British um, take these men, but all four of them are forced to ride on horses without proper equipment. In other words, they were all told to um, dislodge their saddles and everything else that goes into um, riding a horse in terms of equipment-wise. So these four prisoners are riding along the middle of the road towards Lexington with British troops having formed a circle around them in order to prevent any escape attempts. So, okay, now I'm sure you all are wondering, okay, now where are, they, where are the four prisoners going to go? I mean, given that they don't have any equipment on them. And wouldn't it be foolish to let Paul Revere be released? I mean, my gosh, you've got the prized possession, and yes, even if you keep them in your hands long term, yes, there are other men out there ready to keep the fight alive. But wouldn't it be best, if you're the British, to lock him up? Or even better yet, just ship him over to England where he could be tried for offenses left and right and to be basically put away to where he would never be heard from again. I would think that would be a very logical choice, but we might find out that the opposite is going to play out. So the British officers and their troops, along with their prisoners, they as they got ever so closer 
from, Le from Lexington Green, that is about a half a mile from Lexington Green, gunshots are heard. Paul Revere told a Major Mitchell that the gunshot that the gunshots heard were deliberate were done deliberate were done deliberately rather in warning the countryside. In other words, the gunshots that were fired were meant to warn the countryside of imminent British um, presence. In other words, it would just be a matter of a short time before British soldiers start making their way into the nearby uh, neighboring towns of Lexington. The British officers were stunned by the sound of gunfire. They truly didn't believe that perhaps these um, backcountry people actually had enough smarts to warn their own kinsfolks of what was going to lie ahead. But hey, even people who live far away from the city, to say in this case far away from Boston, they're smart. They know how to defend their homeland. They know how to look after one another. And they're not afraid to back down without a fight. So yes, the British officers were stunned by the sound of gunfire, but they also began to understand what Paul Revere himself had been saying all along, if they remained in and around Lexington Green. In other words, be prepared for the inevitable. In other words, be prepared for a confrontation somewhere nearby. Be prepared for blood to be shed. So Major Mitchell, the British officer, he is the one that ordered the release of Paul Revere and the other three prisoners. The release was done. As Major Mitchell was worried, the reason why this release was done, because Major Mitchell himself was worried for the safety of British regulars. Revere and the other prisoners did have horses, but they were without their essential equipment. So basically, wherever the horses, wherever they were going, it would probably take them a lot longer to get to their, desti their chosen destination because the horses they had were not the same horses they had prior to being caught. So all four of the men rode towards Cambridge. As for the horse that Paul Revere had that was given to him by the Larkin family, it remained in British hands. As Revere and the other three men made it back to Lexington Green, one activity was going on. The people of Lexington and elsewhere were coming from various directions to see if British forces were nearby. So they got the word out, and after all, they obviously got word out by sound of gunshot, but probably from a courier or two saying, hey, be prepared. The British will be coming at some point. It's up to you to um, heed this warning and to now make the necessary defensive preparations on your end. The other, th It's interesting to note that, um, well, yes, uh, Paul Revere and these uh, three other three prisoners had a um, harrowing experience with being um, interrogated, but yet only to be released um, the other three prisoners stayed behind at, what, at what's called a Buckman Tavern. As for Paul Revere, he wasn't ready to throw in the towel and say, hey, I'm tired, I need to go to sleep for eight to ten hours. He ends up riding by horse northward on another mission. Okay, so 
the work um, is still unfinished and the objectives still are out there. And I tell you, it might be fair to say that Paul Revere hasn't used up any of his nine lives. After all, he is a man on a mission, but he knows that the mission itself is bigger than him. After all, he's, he has been given a second chance at life. After all, the fact that he didn't flinch, he didn't break down while being interrogated, especially knowing he had six pistols pointed at him. The fact that he manipulated in a clever way of getting the British to understand what would happen the longer they stayed in the area, that takes a lot of courage. To me, Revere himself should have even uh, been given something like the equivalent of a, of a um, I don't know, like a purple heart or a, or a, a bronze medal, something for uh, bravery, basically. After all, he was putting his own life on the line to protect countless other uh, couriers, or I uh, should say dispatch riders, to let alone everyday ordinary townsfolks people whom were going about making the essential preparations to defend their livelihood. So prior to Paul Revere's capture, were there plans in place for another rider or courier to travel north, spreading news originating from Boston? Yes. But here's the um, surprise twist. Historians still don't know to this day whom that courier was. What they do know is that he performed a 25-mile northward journey. He did perform his mission well. The courier himself rode as far north into Tewksbury, where he advised a man named Captain Troll, who was the head of the Tewksbury militia, that all towns from Charlestown to Tewksbury were warned of British troop movement. And if that's not enough in terms of um, making um, positive headways, the warnings themselves by this courier his message alone spread, was able to spread as far north as New Hampshire. And of course, you know, New Hampshire borders Massachusetts. Um, Portsmouth, New Hampshire is not far from Boston. Of course, as we know um, from a previous podcast, Paul Revere rode to Portsmouth to um, warn um, the people of, of uh, Portsmouth about the British coming into their territory and, of course, we uh, were able to strike back by taking over Fort William and Mary. Of course, there was never any imminent British threat then, but the fact that we were able to seize the fort and its gunpowder was phenomenal, knowing that we were able to um, catch the British off guard when they least expected it. So the fact of the matter is that by word getting out as far north as New Hampshire, you know, in this case, like Portsmouth being 30 miles from Boston, that says a lot right there, considering that from, um, considering in colonial days, the average amount of um, mileage one could probably travel from point A to point B without anything happening was usually just below or right at 30 miles. So for this courier to have uh, gone as far north as New Hampshire, a 30-mile journey from Boston to New, New Hampshire, um, that's remarkable. So the people of New Hampshire now are heeding these warnings and know that, okay, 
even if we're not in Massachusetts, we are right on that boundary line. We still have a right to owe it to our own people to defend not only just ourselves, but to defend everyone else around, around our vicinity. So, isn't it fair to say that the Midnight Riders' purpose was to awaken New England's institutions? Absolutely. Okay, and in this case, when we think of institutions, how about churches? Not just churches, but ministers, okay? A minister is preaching to his congregation. A minister delivers a sermon. Isn't it fair to say that even a minister ought to, um, in his sermons, yield um, or um, call out a calling for people? After all, that was part of Paul Revere's um, indoctrination when growing up, that yes, there were two works, one a vocation, but a greater calling that was uh, church-related, and maybe not so much to go into um, theology or be a minister, but how about performing a, a greater call of duty? After all, that's what ministers and their sermons want us as Christians to uh, perform. In other words, yes, you have a vocation, you're good at it, that's great. But how about perform other good works, other good deeds that people can identify you with so that you become a more well-rounded person? That's where an example of an institution can come into play. How about physicians and, lawyer, and lawyers? After all, doctors do more than just check on uh, people. Look at Dr. Joseph Warren. He's more than just a doctor. He is a leader of this movement. He is the one making speeches right now, left and right, about ensuring that people's freedoms, that people's fundamental rights are not trampled by an institution 3,000 miles away that has no regard for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How about family networks? We should keep in mind that... Um, that in many of the towns in Massachusetts, the towns were comprised of a couple of families who married into one another that were the head uh, leaders of their respective communities. You know, remember, folks, you know, we don't have suburbs back then. You know, our towns may have small numbers of people living, but those numbers also reflect how many families from within are living there. After all, the greater the family networks you have, the greater the word can spread, not just to those families themselves, but to the other people nearby who may not be related to them, but yet um, are looking after, but yet everyone's looking after one another. Because remember, if you're going to get the word out, it has to be a greater effort. It cannot be I, me, myself. And that's not what Paul Revere's mission was, or that let alone of the Midnight Riders. So, Paul Revere, it is very fair to say that Paul Revere knew political institutions were the backbones for organizing rallies, coordinating surprise missions. Without political institutions, and like the church, to having people in, who are like physicians or lawyers, how can people come together and understand what their greater calling is? Without those institutions, people aren't going to be able to mobilize successfully. Now, after departing Lexington, where did P Paul Revere travel direction-wise? Remember, folks, he didn't have a GPS on him. 
But Paul Revere knows these roads very well. As a matter of fact, the Americans know their roads and know their terrain better than the British do. But we're also going to find out that um, what works in Massachusetts, for example, may not work the same in Pennsylvania or New Jersey or as far south as South Carolina. Of course, I don't want to spoil anything, but we must remember that um, we should be reminded that um, the men in Massachusetts who fought at Lexington and Concord and, and at Bunker Hill, they were a different uh, group of men whom were far more unified than, say, the men at Pennsylvania or the men of New Jersey or uh, Maryland or Delaware. The reason for that is because the middle colonies had greater pockets of loyalists or greater pockets of um, not just of uh, loyalism, but where loyalists were, uh, were welcomed and where those who were patriots were, were frowned and shunned upon. But anyways, as for Paul Revere, the direction he's traveling, he, he rides northeast from Charlestown to Medford where people assembled quickly, especially uh, Captain Isaac Hull, who is the commander of Medford's Minutemen, whom had gone about immediately sounding the town's alarm system. Of course, when I say alarm system, folks, I'm not talking about a Brinks home security system. You know, when I think of alarm systems, even in the 18th century, there's one thing that would come to my mind that would um, sound an alarm. How about a church bell? Or just bells in general, but the church bell itself, because after all, churches are usually the tallest structures in communities. And by ringing the bell, that would bring everyone in the community together to know that, hey, there is an emergency. And there's an emergency, it's serious, we need every hand possible in helping um, assess the situation. I should point out that alarm riders rode as far north as Ando Andover, that's spelled A-N-D-O-V-E-R, which is uh, north of Boston as well as North Reading, where church bells rang constantly in getting the word out about the British movement. Of course, when I have mentioned to you all before about north of Boston, I usually think of Marblehead, Gloucester, Salem, um, in that area. But uh, just north of Boston, there's what's known as uh, Billerica. How do I know about Billerica? Well, not to get off subject, but in my line of work in uh, transportation, we have uh, six Estes uh, terminals. I work for a company called Estes Express Lines that's been around for 90 years. It's a, a wonderful trucking company to work for, but there are six terminals in Massachusetts. We've got one in Boston, Seekonk, uh, Billerica, Methuen, Worcester, and Chicopee. Now, uh, Billerica, Billerica and Boston each split up uh, the greater Boston area, but uh, Billerica is not far from Andover or North Reading and not too far from uh, Marblehead and Gloucester. But, uh, but yes, these alarm riders go as far north into uh, Andover and North Reading. And hey, you know what? The further north you go, the better. After all, cover your ground. Cover every square inch you know possible because if you don't, who's to say that if one or two towns don't get the warning that that could that onto itself could make make or break 
in, in, in either preventing or running the risk of, uh, of people losing their lives. After all, people's livelihoods are at stake here, folks. It's just not one town. It's all the towns. And if people don't find out soon enough that the enemy is not far from them, you know, they're going to lose out on an opportunity to mobilize. Mobilization is so essential. Without it, how can anything be done to assure your safety and that of your uh, people around you? Now, was Paul Revere well acquainted with leaders throughout all of Massachusetts? Yes, he was. Revere himself knew where they lived, but at the same time he became acquainted with leaders whom he had not met before. Hey, it, it, it never hurts to, um, to meet new faces because you never know sometimes when the new people you meet, you're going to need them down the road. Now, I should point out that Paul Revere's ride to Lexington covered roughly uh, 13 miles, and this was done in less than two hours. Revere's route went north and west of Boston, which included meeting Whig leaders in places like Charlestown, Medford, Cambridge, to Manitomi. As for William Dawes, he traveled 17 miles in roughly three hours. He went south across Boston Neck, which would have been the entrance into the entrance and exit into and leaving from Boston to Roxbury, which is just on the outskirts of the city. He went west and north through Brookline, Brighton, Cambridge, Lexington. And as for Dr. Samuel Prescott, he went about getting the word through Lincoln and Concord where he garnered the attention of ministers, militia officers, to family networks in the outlying villages. He also recruited couriers the same way that Revere and Dawes had done, had done for him. Who's Major Francis Faulkner? I don't expect many of you all would have known about him. I didn't know anything about him until I'd read this book, but uh, he is someone that's worth pointing out. All right, well, here we go. Francis Faulkner is a resident of South Acton. He was approached by Dr. Prescott about British troop movement. Once Major Faulkner knew about the inevitable, and that is with British troop movement nearby, Faulkner himself went about firing his musket three times which was a prearranged signal for assembling people in town. Hey, you've got to find a way to um, to get the message out. After all, folks, we don't have we don't have time to go knocking on people's doors left and right, but you've got to find a way to um, alert people as quickly as possible. After all, firing your musket three times to get people to assemble that might as well be the equivalent of a breaking news alert app notice. And there were prearranged systems of, uh, during this time of what, what we know as beacon fires and signal guns that were used to gather militia in such places that we now know as Carlisle, being north of Concord and Acton. I will say this, folks. People were clever back then with how to go about assembling. I mean, hey, you didn't have to take roll call. You didn't, I mean, look, we don't have telephones back then, but people knew how to assemble. 
And you know what? It worked. How late into the morning, or how I should say, how late into the morning hours after midnight did the couriers spread warnings of British troop movement? The warnings went as late in the warnings, rather I should say, went well past midnight into the hours of uh, three to five a.m. as well as from five to nine a.m. So we have to just keep in mind that not everything occurred around midnight and that was it. So between 3 to 5 a.m. as well as from 5 to 9 a.m., Dedham, or, or as people in Massachusetts might say Dedham, but Dedham, being southwest of Boston, did not get the word from, from any of the couriers until about 9 a.m., which would have been April 19th. Roxbury was alerted at dawn. Let's uh, pay very uh, careful uh, attention here, folks. We're going to be wrapping it up here uh, shortly um, with this podcast session. But, I mean, I can already tell you this much. We have covered a lot. I'm sure many of you all have learned more than you probably did not know before about this greater network. After all, it is a story that has been forgotten, but thank heavens David Hackett Fisher uh, mentioned it. While Paul Revere's ride itself was significant, the greater significance was just how broad the entire network of intelligence gathering played out from bottom to top. Everyone had a story to tell because they were willing to make the essential sacrifices in ensuring their safety was one step ahead of British movement. A one-man show, a.k.a. one-man ride, is false. In other words, Paul Revere's ride, we were told for years that he went all around the countryside saying the British were coming. The one-man show, one-man ride, that's false. Without the greater communication network, Paul Revere, Dr. Samuel Prescott, and William Dawes would have been delayed by more than an hour, maybe two at best, to where General Gage and his forces would have succeeded and history most likely could have yielded a different outcome. In other words, what was the mission here, folks? To get people, not just to get people, but to get, but to awaken the institutions, to awaken the church, to awaken not just the church, but the minister and his congregation, awaken doctors and lawyers to do more than just... Um, practice their vocation, but to go, but to expand their greater calling and save people. It's like what President Kennedy said years ago, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. The Midnight Riders wanted people to not only just take a stand, but they wanted, they wanted the people to not just rely on those above them, the being the riders. The people were inspired to, to, to take on the change, to make the change happen, to send their own message by saying, okay, now that we've got this information, it's up to us to do something with it, to make us better in the sense of being more vigilant now than ever before, that we can go out there and warn our local townspeople and then 
get and then have some people go by horseback into another town to get the word out. After all, folks, this was, in many ways, the Midnight Riders' journey was like a great awakening. The people, the townspeople knew that the inevitable would come. Maybe they didn't realize just how soon it would be. But without their ride, not just that of Revere, Dawes, and Prescott, but countless other couriers on the night of April 18th and into the uh, wee hours of April 19th, 1775, without those riders going north to south and east to west, and even as far north as New Hampshire, the Massachusetts-New Hampshire line even into New Hampshire, I tell you folks, history would have had a different outcome. It's probably fair to say that a, a, a greater number of courier riders might have been um, taken prisoner, maybe even left for dead. I still find it a miracle that Paul Revere wasn't just hauled off to England. But the fact that he proved to be an example of survival of the fittest, even with six pistols pointed at him, yeah, he was a man on a journey. He was also a man of integrity, a man of faith. A man who is not going to surrender. A man who basically said, hey, you know what? If you want to capture me, fine, but there are ten other people in line ready to take my place, and the and they are obviously carrying out the mission. So this is a story here, folks, of, um, of a greater mission, but a mission that could not have been done without an awakening. It sounds as if we are finishing this now, but actually, folks, we still have a lot more um, story left to tell in Paul Revere's ride. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to discuss um, about the rising of the militia and how the militia um, came together in preparation for, as what Ralph Waldo Emerson said, the shots heard round the world. We could talk about some other things, too. But what I do know is that we've covered a lot of ground, and I look forward to being on the air again soon. Thank you, as always, for listening. You guys are wonderful. Keep getting the word out. And if you know of people who want a podcast, you just tell them to come to Anchor. It's free. The opportunities are limitless, and the results go beyond the sky ceiling. Thank you. Thank you all again. Um, wherever you all are, continue to stay safe, and, I'll, and I look forward to being back on the air again next. Take care.